Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. 3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to Elders past and present of the Kulin Nation and recognises their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Monday Breakfast on 3CR. Hope everyone had a great weekend and is ready for the week ahead. How's everyone in the studio feeling this morning? Excellent. It's it was the sun was coming up, so mm. it's really nice to have that kind of uh, clear sky mm. uh, in in the early mornings. I enjoy that. Yeah, the weather is such a pleasant change to have some sunshine and blue sky. I love it when you look up in the sky so blue it kind of looks fake, like mm. you know, it's like that perfect color. I get I don't lost know, in the vastness nice. of the horizon in those p- p- points in time. Yeah, it's mm. um it's really nice to have a change in the weather. And there is not a change in the studio. We are joined here, Monday Breakfast team. It's um, Jackson, Layla, and myself, James. And we've got a, a really exciting show again today. And lots of, you know, quite a, a range of different things to discuss. And mm. um, yeah, what, Jackson, do you want to tell us what we're going to be talking about? Well, we're going to do alternative news. As normal, we're going to be talking about the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Um which I think a few, uh, a lot of our listeners will be aware of. It's been a discussion point over the last couple of years, and it's rearing its complex uh, head again um, on the international stage with Australia involved. And we're also going to be uh, listening back to uh, an interview that uh, we were lucky enough to do with Chelsea Manning last week um, via phone from New Zealand, uh, where we touched on a whole range of issues, and we'll start playing that at about quarter past seven, I think, um, or maybe a little bit later, depending on you know how long we chat about other things. And uh, yeah, um, we've also got Over the Wall, which is looking at uh, robo-debts, um, I'm pretty sure, this week. Um, so thanks to Peter and Duncan for getting that together again. Um, they always do a great job. Um, yeah, I think they're, actually they're talking about, um, sorry, robo-debts, that's not quite right. They're talking about mass cutting of Centrelink staff, which was something that has been a feature of the last few budgets from the... Uh, Abbott Turnbull, Abbott Turnbull, Scott Morrison, Abbott Tur- Turnbull, Scott Morrison government. Yeah, I don't really know what to call it anymore. The the ra- the rabble in in <laughs> Parliament, perhaps. Well, we saw um, Tony Abbott send a tweet out on the weekend, congratulating five years of the Abbott government. Um, <laughs> really? Yeah, legitimately. Oh and my god! He, I think it said like... um, today celebrates five years of the Abbott government. It goes from strength to strength each day. <laughs> so. It's like someone, like, thinking their birthday party's still going on. You know, like, I've had such a good time. Thanks, everyone, for being here. It's like, there's no, there's no one here, Tony. 
I'm not sure who's more delusional about the state of people that they're meant to control, Chris Scott or Tony Abbott, but uh, they both had some uh, shocking uh, losses over the weekend. We're actually not allowed to talk about football on the show anymore. I've received some feedback. Of, uh, we've, we've, we've actually started a movement. There's going to be some anti-football zines published by some friends of mine, so that'll be the last. No, actually, we might talk a little bit about football at the very end of the show, so I think contrary tuned. to that, we're... Um, Hoping to release a separate uh, little podcast um, for our podcast listeners that will have a bit of footy chat on it. Yeah, we'll try and silo it for those who yep. find it, um, you know, a bit Although if, bloody boring at this time of year. If there is a huge download of that, we'll yep. have to reassess. That's right. That was um, what the people but want. Also on the show, um, later this morning, we've got Reese Graham, who is... Um, an AFI winning, uh, award-winning writer and filmmaker, and he's got a new film that's coming out called Ranger to Ranger. Um, and I was lucky enough to watch a an advanced copy of last night, and it's a really, really interesting um, documentary where uh, Aboriginal rangers uh, go across to Kenya to meet um, Kenyan rangers there. And, um, yeah, it's a really interesting kind of, I, I guess, shared cultural experience and... Uh, a lot of interesting kind of things that happen as part of that program. So I'm really looking forward to chatting to him as well. Yeah, sounds great. Reese has been making good stuff for years. Yes. Um, so, okay, well, um, let's... Perhaps we should get straight into um, alternative news and um, get the show underway. Some folks know about it, some don't. Some will learn to shout it, some won't. But sooner or later, baby, here's a ditty, say you're gonna... Well, that music signals the time for alternative news. Um, and later we want to have a bit of a chat about some of the issues with the TPP and what's that meant for, I guess, particularly some of the um, countries the most affected by that. Yeah. Um, so a couple of years ago, there was a real fervour around uh, the TPP. I know that Get Up did a pretty fantastic campaign, same with Waka, kind of whistleblower activist uh, collective here in Melbourne. I went to a couple of protests during that time. It was my first time getting introduced to that kind of world. Uh, So it was a really good topic for me to try and, like, understand the kind of global um, geopolitical uh, climate. Um, I think the reason why it resonates with... Um, individuals so well is because it just becomes more and more obvious how much our financial and political systems are in kind of a cahoots to um, ostracize, demoralize and kind of destroy the working class of um, our Western societies. So um, we all, well, at at least I celebrated when um, I thought that it was dead So one of the things that Trump did when he first came into office, I think it was day one, Mm. he uh, withdrew from the TPP. Now, that was for um, his his kind of uh, platform of uh, putting America first again because he he was saying about how the destruction of their manufacturing industry was down to NAFTA and was likening TPP to a similar situation where it was just kind of going to destroy their economy uh, even more so. Mm. So, you know, interesting because uh, kind of spot on there a little bit. 
uh, uh, you don't often say that about Trump, but uh, he was right in that sense. Like uh, a Tuft University did like this um, model where they, they, they implemented theoretically all of the um, legislation that TPP wanted to pass through. And they found that here in Australia, it was actually only going to grow the G- uh, GDP by 0.5%. And we were actually going to lose 39,000 jobs over 10 years. Uh, so that's if the TPP goes through. So all of this kind of... Um, rhetoric- jobs and growth. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, ha ha. Like, jobs and growth, ha ha. Um, yeah, obviously not. Um, which is um, ridiculous, obviously. Um, uh, and, and now the trade minister, I saw him on... Um, Fox News actually talking about the TPP and how it's still going to go through. Um, he's he's been making the circuits around the world, uh, kind of um, as heralding this as the the new age of the new world order in so many words. Um, but now it's called T- um, what was it called, Jackson? Oh, it's no longer just the Trans-Pacific Partnership. It's now the Comprehensive Progressive Trans-Pacific Partnership. So that's the CPTPP. Uh, so previously it wasn't comprehensive or progressive, but don't worry. Now it is. They're just like literally running off the script book of Orwell's 1984. Like this is like... It is what it it isn't. (laughs) Well, it probably is comprehensive, but it doesn't include two of the major uh, countries that it previously did. So Mm. that makes it difficult to be comprehensive of the Mm. Pacific area. And, you know, whether it's progressive or not, I guess it really depends on your definition of progressive. It does remind me of, I don't know if you ever watched Veep, but... um, uh, you know, uh, the great uh, satire about American politics, and one of her campaign slogans was uh, "sustainability and change." <laughs> you know, which I mean, and then uh, I believe Turnbull actually used that phrase sometime oh, later yes! in, a, in a press conference, <laughs> where for sustainability and change, and uh, yeah, or continuity and change, it might have been. Anyway, it was you know two contradictory terms. Well, I think it seems um, actually that Turnbull and Liberal governments are for sustainable change. Yes, <laughs> very good. <laughs> yeah. um, but not a change to sustainables. No. No. So this TPP or CTPP, TTP, will actually be going through the Senate uh, in October this year. So this is all being <laughs> researched, resurrected from the dead, mm. and just very quietly kind of moving through the, uh, you know, inner inner circles of our parliament. Mm. Um, so this is something that we should all start talking about again, which is unfortunate because we're, you know, like for me, I was like, I thought we had this conversation. I thought this was over, mm. uh, but it's not. Um, they did make some slight changes um, to the um, the bill. Um, unfortunately, though, they are um, the, the Investor State Dispute Settlement Court is still there. Um, so that's where uh, they pretty much give corp- um, corporations the power to sue governments over things that may impact their profits. Um, so we had um, a situation where um, a tribunal put f- through, um, actually approved uh, the suing of the Peruvian government by a Canadian mining company, $24 million after their mining license was revoked um, for Indigenous, um, because it was on Indigenous land. Well, I mean, it's all Indigenous land, but uh, let's not go into that right now. Mm. Uh, um, so that's an example of what could happen if the TPP is put through. Not that it's not already happening, but it could just be happening more blatantly and more obviously. Mm. Uh, uh, the, yeah, so this is... Um, 
super problematic. And again, it's so abstracted from our everyday life that it's very hard to kind of contemplate what's going to happen when this is put through. Um, But unfortunately, we have to start like put, you know, we have to put our theoretical hats on and just like kind of hypothetically try and understand what the future will contain if this is put through and act on that now. Well, I think, you know, one thing with all um, trade agreements that are, you know, orchestrated in this way is that they don't benefit working class people, they don't benefit poor people, that, you know, they're put in by, um, you know, the ruling class to benefit the ruling class. And I think that while it's true that, um, you know, it was great that Donald Trump um, got rid of the TPP, I think that there are sections of the business, you know, groups of people that didn't like some aspects of the TPP, which is why Donald Trump didn't like it. I don't think he had any um, affliction for, you know, how it was affecting poor people, you know, across the countries or whatever. But, um, yeah, I think that we need to be really concerned about any of these kind of, um, you know, partnerships that happen where inevitably in, you know, Pacific region here, that's going to be Australia bullying smaller nations to Mm. take their resources. Mm. And I think, um, you know, Layla nailed it as well when she was talking about Donald Trump appealing to his base, you know. Mm. And I think, you know, there's this 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 tension at the moment, you know. I think that um, we understand, you know, through critical analysis, the problems with um, globalization and that it hasn't delivered, um, you know, to the to the lower middle classes or the working classes the kind of prosperity that everyone was promised, you know, with these constant rollbacks of regulation and the ideas of free trade. You know, it seems to have, um, you know, concentrated wealth like many other recent. Um, Global, you know, global decisions or neoliberal decisions about about economics, um, but then there's there's this dual tension where you're, you're talking about you know I'm all, I'm all for nas- nationalisation of essential services you know and getting things in you know in control of people and and delivering uh, services to people, but there's also kind of a nascent nationalism that rides um, shotgun to these ideas, which which is what. Trump is appealing to as well in his, you know, make America great again, that he's saying, we can do everything ourselves, you know, we, we, we don't need uh, interaction with the outside world, you know, which is a dangerous kind of uh, position to take because it feeds into, you know, nativism and nationalism and uh, fascism and, you know, a lot of these ideas. There's, a, there's kind of, so while we should, you know, critique the aspects of the TPP that are going to make working life harder, um, for, for the vast majority of, of workers, we also need to remember the importance of um, trade and the importance of cultural exchange across um, communities. You know, um, I think that that's been one of the uh, positive things of the 20th century has been uh, the, the sharing of, cu- of cultural um, knowledge and, 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 and trade, you know, ha- has been a good thing, but it needs to be in a way that serves the people, not the powerful and not uh, the profitable alone. Yeah, you made me think of this Gandhi quote, and it's like, Western man fills his cupboard with groceries and considers himself self-sufficient. That's like that, that's yeah. like the Trump situation mm. um, because it's completely impossible. But what what this brings up is that I think we need a stronger international governing body than than what we have with the UN. Uh, we need to be able to, yeah, like be part of an international community, but also like how are we going to uphold the values of solidarity and mutual aid, mm. in, in, um, you know, cross borders. Mm. Well, I think that but the UN represents those exact same interests. You know, I think that while you have the um, permanent members who are able to veto any decisions that they think are not in the interests of the ruling class of those countries, but even beyond that, you know, I think that 
you know, if we want to look at like left-wing alternatives to, you know, what the economic system is putting up, because even like Jackson said, the things about, you know, neoliberalism or globalization, you know, has got these are products of that. They're only just products of capitalism. You know, they're only just aspects in which different um, capitalists have decided a way to kind of dress up capitalism in a different form to suck, sell it to our suckers. You know, like it's still it's still the same thing. We're still being ripped off in the same way. And I think that the UN is always going to provide that kind of role. It's not, I don't see how it can provide any other kind of alternative that's going to be more progressive. Mm. I suppose, yeah, economic relations aren't the only form of relations, you know, and we look to the UN for guidance around asylum seekers, around war, uh, around a whole lot of human experience, you know, to try and create a better, you know, that there is some ideals in the UN that I think are worth protecting. And I, I think to Layla's point, you know, like we... You can't have a global revolution until you have a global government. So roll on world government, I say. <laughs> well, um... No government at all. Anarchy. <laughs> yeah, I think it's a, it's an interesting kind of discussion around, um, you know, like you brought up, Jackson, some of the issues that are perhaps positives of globalisation, of sharing knowledge and cultures and things like that. Mm. I, I, I don't think that they're anything to do with globalization. I think, in any, if anything, really, like that we've accepted watered down kind of aspects of, you know, so you travel um, from, you know, Australia to this um, other country and you see this watered down aspect of culture performed for you. And then you can go back home and talk about that culture. I, I mean, I think one well, of the things that we see in Australia, though, and, you know, which Australia has been proud of for a long time is that that aspect within Australia of sharing cultures mm. and I think that is a really positive aspect. Well, you're going to be uh, presenting later uh, this this morning uh, about the cultural exchange between Indigenous uh, Australian rangers and Kenyan rangers. You know, I think that, um, you know, skill sharing and trade, you know... Uh, I agree with you. Like, I, I, I'd love to think of some kind of utopian society where we don't have nation states and we, you know, we can, we're able to move, you know, fluidly between, between spaces and we have a, a global working wage. That'd be a really nice thing, you know, and a, you know, standardized economy. These kind of things I think would be, uh, really good. But I think to, yeah, I, I'm, I'm not, I'm not claiming that globalization is responsible for all cultural exchange, but I think trade plays a really critical role in going beyond that kind of surface, um, exchange of, um, tourist kind of culture. You know, I think that trade does build lasting relationships between people where they're both getting their needs met, hopefully, if it's a fair trade, to borrow a buzzword of our, our era. Um, so yeah, I think, you know, I think there's some commendable aspects, you know, I, I think that like, um, self-sufficiency in the in the modern market is a pretty uh far-fetched idea you know like I, i'm i'm all for the environmental aspects of it like i think in australia we should be definitely eating less products from cows considering the impact that cows have on our environment but that's kind of a separate issue you know i think you need a balance you know i still want to be able to have cheese every now and then and i don't think that's so outrageous no one could call me a fussy man but i do like a little bit of butter on my bread let me just recap everybody so T tpp <laughs> sorry because there were so many tangents there and yeah. i just want to do a little back announce um tpp is possibly going through let's let's get let's, organized let's start talking about this uh let, talk to your senator i'm a bit skeptical is that no let's let's not get that into it but yeah talk to your senator tell them to vote no um we do not want this we do not want this tpp is not a good thing for the general population
And there's some really good materials on uh, aftinet.org, A-F-T-I-N-E-T.org.au about uh, the TPP renewing, if you're interested to find out more. Well, I think um, I just wanted to mention one more aspect on alternative news before I think we should move on to the first part of the interview with Chelsea Manning. And that was that there was an interesting uh, election in um, Wagga Wagga on the weekend. Um, what was interesting about it was that the Liberals... Well, uh, the voting hasn't been um, finalised yet, but the Liberals look like losing. It's a, a seat that they've held for 60 years. And the Liberal Party primary vote dropped, this is at time of counting, um, last night, 28.5% um, from almost 54% last time, 2015. Um, and it was kind of quite spread. You know, Labor had 23.8%, um, and the Independent had 25.6%. Um, Anthony Green was speaking last night that he believes that this has really big impacts for um, both the um, New South Wales election that's going to be in March next year and the federal election. And he's predicting that the most likely scenario is that it will at least be a hung parliament if um, the Liberals were to get enough votes. So, yeah, I think that that's something interesting to watch as we roll on to election season with the um, you know Victorian election in November, followed by... March in New South Wales, and then most likely a federal election here in May. You're listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned to hear the rest of your 3CR podcast. Jackson, would you like to um, just introduce... We had a chat... um, on Friday, Thursday, Thursday yep. um, we were part of a press conference over the phone with a number of other journalists across mm. Australia, having a chat to Chelsea Manning, who, um, you know, as most people hopefully know, is a whistleblower, was part of the US military, was, um, you know, in prison for a period of time before being um, let out um, by order of um, President Obama at the time. And um, she had come to embark on a speaking tour across Australia. Um, and was denied a visa. Yeah, so I just think it's important to note that the um, the content that you're about to hear is the result of questioning from a number of different journalists. Um, I, I don't have permission to use their voices, but I wanted to credit them as uh, Jasmine Duss, Duff from the uh, National Union of Students, uh, Oliver Caffrey from AAP, Alex Bruce Smith from Network 10, uh, and also Michael McGowan from The Guardian, you know, all asked questions that prompted some of these responses. So, so thanks for them for their for their questioning. Yeah, and I, I just think it's a really good to hear from someone who's been so up close to um, uh, the American military's uh, action recently. It's something I'm really interested in. So I was really interested to talk to Chelsea about. And also just her experience of being denied a visa. You know, it's been such a topical issue here in Australia with uh, Peter Dutton and the au pairs, the grounding of um, visas or the, you know, the, de- the denial of due process, uh, the ignoring of due process for people, for the wealthy and powerful, and then, you know, the, the, the total lack of um, transparency and, and clearness as to why Chelsea was denied a visa when someone else who has a very similar history to her in David Petraeus, who also was moved to, to comment on US actions from what he saw while leading troops in Iraq and Afghanistan, um, came and spoke in Australia not long ago. So, yeah, just start highlighting some of that um, hypocrisy. But yeah, I hope you um hope you enjoy this chat. So we pay we'll play um part one and then perhaps come back and we'll play yeah. part two after that. Yeah, sounds good.
Chelsea begins by explaining her thoughts on the government letting in the likes of Stephen Molyneux, Milo Yiannopoulos, Steve Bannon and Lauren Southern, but denying her a visa. She mentions that people who speak out against racism and other far-right opinions are often branded pejoratively as social justice warriors. She also touches on the dangers of concentrated power in government and institutions. Obviously, it's a, it's a very selective process. Um, the minister can make uh, political decisions, and obviously they seem to think that allowing uh, ex- you know, right-wing extremists to often uh, allude to genocide and ethnic cleansing as being a legitimate policy while also... Um, going after, you know, people for having uh, you know, legitimate political views as, as being, like, nearly uh, leftists and SJWs and a, a number of other, you know, monikers uh, that they use. Um, so I think that, you know, there, like, there's obviously a, there's, there's an obvious political element to this, and I think that, um, you know, like that, that just a, it, it's just a further indication of the fact that, you know, Many, many governments, whenever you, you give a little bit of authority to an institution, uh, and this, this happens a lot in the United States with the, with the U.S. president, is that, oh, you know, over time, this tendency to assume benevolence on the part of, uh, of an institution or an office, um, neglects to keep in, you know, to keep, uh, neg- neglects to take into account the fact that, um, there, if, if you give too much power to an to an executive branch or to any branch of government, uh, then eventually, inevitably, in fact, it will be abused. Here in Australia, we know all too well the power Dutton currently has over the lives of refugees and their children, with hundreds still locked in indefinite detention. The revelations over the past week of wealthy people's household servants avoiding this cruel, draconian treatment really turns the stomach. When Chelsea was asked if she thinks her own visa ban was an abuse of that power. She was quick to point out those that are truly suffering. It, it certainly is being abused, but I, 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 what concerns me more is the, you know, like not necessarily in my case, but uh, how it's abused across the board in, uh, in Australia in particular. And I, I've learned, uh, you know, I, I was vaguely aware of, you know, the, the issues that are in, you know, that are ongoing regarding immigration and especially custody of, Folks uh, who are tr- attempting to enter the country and, like, you know, the, the literal, uh, I, dare I say, you know, that, they're, that, that these, like, camps and whatnot are, uh, are concentration camps up north, you know. Uh, so I think that, uh, and I certainly learned a whole lot about this in the, in the, in the last few days that I, I didn't necessarily know it as in depth. Despite the Department of Home Affairs failing to provide a visa to Miss Manning, she was still able to appear in Melbourne on Friday and in Brisbane tonight via video link. This makes it clear to Chelsea that the decision to deny her a visa was a political one. Well, I've repeatedly criticised uh, the the, immig- I mean, the Australian immigration policies um, in numerous public statements prior to uh, this uh, this like political decision. So, um, you know, it should be unsurprising that you know there might be a a, a, a a difference in how in the policy gets applied uh, based on those who are in who are in unquestioning support of the national security establishment of any country uh, versus, uh, say, my opinion. I asked Chelsea about Donald Trump raging against fake news. 
similar to the political voices here in Australia claiming the ABC is biased and doesn't report the truth. The response from Google and Facebook to this criticism is to doctor their algorithms, somehow deciding what is true and what isn't, and inevitably, it seems, silencing the voices of criticism and dissent. What does Chelsea think about the global state of freedom of information, of freedom of ideas? I think we're at a critical crossroads here. Um, and in particular, uh, I, it, it, I have actually a personal connection with some of these uh, with some of these uh, Facebook page crackdowns in particular. Um, I was actually working, uh, I was working with a, a number of uh, folks in a counter-protest uh, in, uh, in early August uh, against uh, Jason Kessler uh, you know, and their attempt at uh, putting together another Unite the Right 2 um, you know, on the, the one-year anniversary of Charlottesville. And uh, there was a Facebook page that was a legitimate Facebook page with a legitimate protest with like numerous uh, thousands of thousands of people who had RSVP'd and were getting updates uh, daily about what you know about this action, and uh, that and that got caught in caught up into the the, the Facebook deletions uh, that were you know reported in the media, uh, not necessarily by Facebook itself, but were widely reported in the media to be Russian fake news, and it was. Quite, it was quite scary. It was actually quite frightening and, and disturbing to see, you know, like folks in the D.C. area be es- essentially called Russian stooges that, and Russian bots, you know, and uh, it became quite a joke among, uh, among my, you know, my friends uh, in which, you know, we, we just kind of like, you know, had to run around and explain to people, we're not Russian bots, but, uh, but, very, but you know, on a more serious note, you know, like it, the, this, is the, this is the danger of, placing so much arbitrary power um, as to what, you know, as to what is and is not deemed fake. And it seems that most of these, uh, most of these assertions about, you know, fake news and, and whatnot have, have a real strong undercurrent of, um, of authoritarian, you know, uh, attempts to uh, undermine, uh, the, the, the public you know the, the, the public debate because um, if, if you're if you're able to essentially call every person that you disagree with uh, somebody who's putting out fake information then uh, and, and then you also put out fake information yourself you're essentially uh, trying to undermine uh, everyone and, and exhaust people's ability to, to think critically um, so it's a real attempt to just exhaust people I think. Um, and, uh, and, you know, so there's, there's, there, there's a lot of different things that are happening all at once here, but um, I think that, it, it, that we, need to, we need to not think about this in terms of, like, who, who is the arbiter of this, but think more along the lines of what kind of, um, what kind of interests do the kinds of people who say these things and do these things, um, you know, whether making accusations or producing propaganda materials or to think that we need to keep our eyes out uh, more on who's doing it and why. The control of information and the rise of Trump are inexorably linked to the frightening rise of the far right at home and across the world. Not just in the West, but a creeping authoritarianism is on the march in Russia, in Southeast Asia, in East Asia and in the Middle East. This is what Chelsea thought we should do to fight the far right. Don't give them a platform, uh, and it's very. This is this is extremely important. 
you can't interview a, you can't interview a far right extremist um, on what they believe because they don't have they, they don't have an actual ideology. What they have are propaganda statements. You know, you know they say crazy things, and 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 y'all like reporters like to report on the crazy things that they say. But they're really dog whistles to say to 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 say to people who might you know secretly be having similar opinions, hey, it's okay to say these things now. So you're really just becoming a, 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 a microphone, a mouthpiece, uh, and you're really, if you give them a platform, and uh, the New Yorker you know, Festival in particular is, is, is something that's relevant, um, where the New Yorker Festival was essentially going to be giving um, Steve Bannon a platform, uh, a legitimate platform to, to spread his ideas, um, which aren't really ideas. They're just they're just propaganda to you know the dog whistling and and also the the, the use of these platforms to to gain I- legitimacy for some of these uh, you know uh, policies like Steve Bannon was the architect of the uh, Muslim ban, for instance. They they only have power and relevance because y'all give it to them whenever you interview them in the first place. And I think that's the real danger here. And, you know, I just want to reiterate again that they don't have, they don't, what, what they say doesn't matter. It's the intent that's behind it. You know, uh, it, they're, they're going to say crazy and outrageous things that, you know, uh, that, that, that you, you, that y'all like to report on. And, you know, they, they, they know that. They know that it's edgy. They know that it, you know, it's news that, be, that it generates something that, appears on the surface to be newsworthy. That's the strategy. And that's where the real danger is with journalists, is that you, you essentially become, if you don't recognize this and you don't realize this, then you can, come, then you can essentially become you know, a third party. You, know, you can become complicit in that. I have to admit, I was a bit troubled overall by this position. The concept of no platforming is a complicated one for me, as is the assertion that Steve Bannon's power is derived solely from media attention and contains no actual ideology or beliefs. By denying any appeal of this right-wing fascist populism beyond racism and xenophobia, I felt Chelsea avoided looking at the material and economic realities, what I would describe as the catastrophic failure of neoliberalism and casino capitalism that are driving some people towards Trump, towards Brexit, towards fear and disharmony. Rising inequality needs to be addressed, and denying Bannon or others a platform doesn't seem to me to be addressing that issue James asked the next question, and my disquiet deepened. Yeah, Chelsea, we would obviously lo- have loved to have had you in Australia, and but your freedom of movement has obviously been restricted. What do you think of the immediate prospects for Edward Snowden and Julian Assange to gain any of their freedom back? I have no idea. That I, I, I don't know the specifics of either case. Um, quite, you know, quite, quite frankly, I'm not qualified to answer that. Um, and uh, and. The specifics of other cases are, are really, uh, of any case, you know, and there's, there's also a, no, there's a number of whistleblowers around the world who have very similar cir- circumstances that, you know, uh, I'm thinking of, uh, well, well, uh, uh, I can't remember his name, the Israeli. Um, anyway, there's a number of cases in which this has been happening over the last 30 years. It's not just, uh, it's not just a couple prominent um, cis, cis men. The Chelsea Manning a former soldier and intelligence officer who was moved to become a whistleblower because she was horrified by the behaviour of an increasingly criminal central command, 
could not or did not want to comment on the fate of Edward Snowden was to me particularly shocking. Chelsea has never been a cis white man, true, but she is white, ostensibly middle class, and a former intelligence officer and a whistleblower. Assange to one side, she has a lot in common with Edward Snowden, and it frustrated me to hear her focus on their differences. Chelsea Manning models herself as a fighter for peace and a voice against the military-industrial complex. I would have thought she could find some allegiance with Snowden. In the next section of this interview, we asked Chelsea about her views on the rising militarism in Australia and around the world. You're listening to 3CR Monday Breakfast. And you are back live on 3CR Monday Breakfast. And we've just been hearing an excerpt from an interview that um, Jackson and I participated in with Chelsea Manning. And obviously, as part of that, um, as Jackson has kindly put together, it's got some, you know, filled in some gaps around some of the things that, um, yeah, I guess it was... um, it was quite an interesting experience, I think, for Jackson and I to be part of that was mm. um, quite different to most other interviews that, that we would have been a part of. And so, yeah, I think that the interview kind of reflects that. And obviously it's a um, complex kind of situation in some ways, but, uh, yeah, we um, we did our best and Jackson's done a great job in putting it all together. Oh, thanks, James. That's very kind. <laughs> so um, I think we'll, we might just go straight into the second part of the interview and then um, if we have time we'll come back and, and have a little chat overall about some of our um, feelings about the interview. You're listening to 3CR Monday Breakfast and this is the second section of a chat with Chelsea Manning. I asked Chelsea about what she interpreted by Scott Morrison's only comments when he was asked about her being denied a visa. PM Morrison said he was for bringing Australians together and keeping them safe. How did Chelsea feel by the implication of that statement? that she is a divisive, unsafe figure? Uh, it, it boils down to, you know, nice-sounding statements that, you know, are complete sentences. <laughs> I, uh, I don't think, you know, I, you, know you, you often hear these, like, very hollow phrases from, you know, uh, from people in power. Um, national security is one of them. Dare... Uh, there anyone actually try to define what national security actually is. I certainly know the legal definition in the United States, which is about as vague as you can get. It is anything of and relating to the national defense and foreign relations. That's incredibly broad. So, um, you know, I just we should all, all be very skeptical and very critical of what people in authority say whenever they say things like, like, this is important for you know, national security, or, you know, this is about, uh, this is about creating jobs, this is about, um, you know, in, in, you know, ensuring the, the protection of our culture and our heritage. Like, these are very, these are very loaded phrases that, that if you start to unpackage them, um, you, you start to, it, it can reveal far more than the statement itself if you actually try to, to do a, a more detailed analysis as to what, you know, to what each different word actually means in, in the context of the phrase. And, uh, and so I, I call it deconstructing. So I like to deconstruct the, the, the phrases of people in power. Analyzing the words of the powerful is critical work for activists. But the suggestion that governments always employ bland, false and meaningless language, I wasn't so sure about. It plays into a broader narrative we are constantly bombarded with. 
that you can't trust government to tell the truth or to run anything substantial. This neoliberal idea is crippling our democracy, and it makes people suspicious of other critical institutions, like unions for example, leaving big business to pick up the pieces of our social compact. As a whistleblower on war crimes, I was fascinated to hear what Chelsea had to say about the growth of the military-industrial complex, with Australia announcing it wants to be one of the world's ten biggest arms dealers, but can't adequately find funding for schools, clean energy, secure housing or jobs. What did Chelsea think of this frightening industry? Yeah, well, there's a lot of money to be made in this. Um, so I, 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 worked, I, I worked in defense previously, as you might have heard, um, and uh, I certainly wanted to. Uh, I certainly wanted to take part of that for uh, financial purposes in my own life at, at one point in my life. Um, you know, to, to there's a lot of it's a very lucrative uh, field to get into. Um, whether you're a, a whether you're a, just an employee, or if you're a business owner, or if you're um, or if you're anything that's that, that's in support of the national security state, um, there's a lot of money to be made, and uh, it, it should be unsurprising that uh, in in, you know, in, in societies that have privatized their military-industrial complex, like significant portions of it, that um, they are constantly wanting to expand and grow. Um, and one, one of the things that I often go around saying is, is I've never really encountered uh, any, um, any, any uh, country in the world that's had a major you know, uh, privatized national security apparatus where politicians and, and people in power uh, and, you know, business leaders and, and, and all these, like, institutional powers uh, say, actually, we need less. We don't need more, like, because they're always asking for more. The United States is a good example of this. Um, we, have, uh, we have the largest military, we have the largest and most expensive military in the world, $700 billion a year now, uh, up from, like, 550 only a few years ago. Um, we have the largest prison population in the world. Uh, we have the, uh, I mean, we, we have the, 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 the most vast intelligence collection platforms uh, and, uh, and, and, uh, and, and analysis systems in the entire world uh, that are enormously expensive. And, uh, and, uh, and yeah, like, we, we just, you never hear that, oh, we, actually, we, we've got enough now. You know, we're done. You know, we, we've got enough to, 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 to sustain this. It's always more. And, uh, and the reality is uh, there's a second part to that, I guess, you know, from my perspective, which is that we should be pushing more for, you know, less. And uh, the time for reforms in this area was like 40 years ago, you know, like because it was sustainable at one point, and now it's not sustainable. So we really need to we really need to push back and start to, to, to dismantle some of these institutions in, uh, uh, in full, in part, you know, and maybe start from, start from scratch. Australia has a joint U.S. military base, Pine Gap, sitting outside Alice Springs. What do you think about Australia having foreign bases on its own soil and, I guess, being so tied to U.S. foreign policy? I knew I was going to get an Alice Springs question eventually. <laughs> I mean, uh, do, do, do you all want it there? I mean, that's, a, I guess, the biggest question is, like, does, do, do folks want it there? And uh, I'm going to guess that the folks in Alice, like, I don't know. Like, I, I don't know how the folks in Alice, in Alice Springs feel. I certainly never heard their opinions on, on this before. I, 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 I often hear it's, it's critical infrastructure. You know, it's, a, it's, it's an international, you know, uh, 
it's an international, you know, requirement or, or um, the international community needs it uh, because it, you know, it covers such a, it covers a, 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 a large, you know, space of, uh, of the, uh, of the, the geographic region that, you know, isn't covered otherwise. Um, you know, I, 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 I don't know, like a, I, I can't really say a whole lot without getting into more sensitive matters that I can't talk about. I'm sorry. <clears throat> James's question there goes to the heart of whether we want our government to continue to be complicit in U.S. foreign policy, policy that has seen countless deaths and wholesale destruction of communities in Southeast Asia, the Middle East, Central and South America, East Asia, and elsewhere from the end of World War II to this day. That Chelsea Manning did not wholeheartedly denounce U.S. foreign policy and in fact suggested the listening post at Pine Gap was critical infrastructure before saying she couldn't speak any more, perhaps speaks of the agreement she signed to secure Obama's pardon. I'm only speculating, but her refusal to speak about Pine Gap shows to me just how potent the military-industrial complex remains, here and abroad. You're listening to 3CR Monday Breakfast, and that was our chat with Chelsea Manning. In 2016, 3CR published a book to celebrate the station's 40th birthday. Years in the making, Radical Radio, celebrating 40 years of 3CR, is a visually stunning account of the people and ideas that make up this dynamic station. At 300 pages, the book includes hundreds of images and over 50 features on programs, people, music and technology from across the decades. 3CR's Radical Radio book is now on sale for just $30. You can get your copy of 3CR's book at the station during business hours at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy. Or online at 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. Get a piece of your own history on sale for just $30. 3CR's Radical Radio is available now. Welcome back to Monday Breakfast on 3CR, and we've been chatting, well, we've been playing a chat that we had on uh, Thursday with Chelsea Manning, and um, yeah, I think that Chelsea's been, um, you know, uh, I guess in the media a lot over the past couple of weeks, so it was great to um, have her... Make herself available. Yeah, well, I think it was good, um, you know, to have some... um, you know, radical analysis there as well too, because it wasn't um, perhaps as we kind of imagined it would be. I think her kind of support for the military-industrial complex and, you know, inability to um, want to speak at all about Julian Assange, Edward Snowden or Pine Gap, which I think are three major um, talking points for anyone who's interested in um, militarization of the world, then, um, yeah, I think that was very interesting. Yeah. I do want to say that she, you know, there's elements of the interview that I didn't include because I thought other shows on 3CR um, would be better place to do that. I think she spoke really strongly on uh, uh, the experience of uh, trans people being interviewed by the mainstream media and responsibilities for journalists. And I think a lot of what she said about um, fighting the rise of fascism was really valid. I just think there's, you know... uh, a bit above and beyond that that we can do as well. So I I think it's re- it's a really complicated thing when someone's in the public eye at such a global level as well like because they're so uh well known, you know, you do develop, you know, I guess you just want you want them to be everything to everyone and that's a little unfair, you know, like for I think that 
for someone you know who's just flown halfway across the world to be denied entrance to a country um she was really generous um with her time and 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 spoke about a range of issues you know so i really thank her for that and um yeah wanted to say that there's another um uh, activist that um you know i won't name but was um you know a friend of of ours and um been on the show before who um, recently went on an overseas trip and returned uh, about a week or so ago, mm. and they were extensively searched um, at the airport when they came in back to Australia. They're an Australian citizen. Mm-hmm. Um, they had all of their um, phone and everything taken off them, and um, you know, would, some, the authorities went through all of their information, their phone, and and all of that kind of thing. Um, and they, you know, they were stuck there for for hours, kind of dealing with all this kind of thing. So. I think it's um, it's something that not only is uh, affecting celebrity whistleblowers, but any activists um, are subjected to really extensive um, search techniques, and mm. you know, no doubt um, have that person has um, may need to throw their phone into the Yarra or dispose of it um, mm. ecologically, but. Um, so you know, to be dismantled and recycled by Apple's automated machine. They've yeah. got a nice single-syllable name to not go down with all the O-bikes. But yeah. Um, yeah, I think it is a part of the security system that we are dealing with now, where we are, you know, monitored closely all the time. And when when authorities do get a chance to look even um, further into our devices, that they like to take that opportunity when they can. Yeah, I just think it was amazing timing too to have all the au pair business going on where you have the, you know, such blatant displays of privilege and um, you know, just asking a favor for a mate and the kind of, you know, the disbelief in those that are accused of abusing their power like oh, I just called up a friend and the friend helped me out, you know, but at the same time you've got women giving birth in detention, you know, because the Australian government won't let them go to a hospital, their babies in detention for months, you know, you've got and just this double standard of uh, letting in far-right commentators and banning someone who has, you know, historically been anti-war and, um, you know, um, yeah, anti-US foreign policy. Well, um, right now it's 7.50 and it's time for our regular program of Over the Wall. And this week, Over the Wall is discussing mass cutting of Centrelink staff and its impact on their services. Each week on Over the Wall, we've covered issues regarding Centrelink and welfare, the cashless welfare card and robo-debts in particular. We've also focused on issues affecting sole parents, interviews with different unions campaigning for hospitality workers and the wage fights. Other editions of Over the Wall have focused on the sell-off of public housing and what that has really meant for people where estates are being subdivided into commercial capitalist ventures and smaller proportions are rezoned for public housing on estates which used to be entirely public housing. Over the Wall will continue to cover as many topics as we can that give people information about how they can find their rights to respond to a bureaucratic system that communicates with them often by automated algorithms and automated letters 
and when people try to seek redress, they often struggle to find who they can speak to within that bureaucratic system and where they can obtain their rights of appeal and information. I'm going to start by talking today of my personal experiences with Centrelink. I've been a recipient of the Disability Support Pension and have witnessed the system become much less human and personal and more automatic in its communication by computerised letters and when I try to get on the phone and actually speak to somebody about an issue it's incredibly hard and I have developed empathy for the actual people that I speak to on the phone because I realise that they have very little training and they can't deal with the issues. I say empathy because imagine doing a job where you're not adequately trained to help people and do your job. And this, of course, is a system of some of the Centrelink services being privatised and, and sold off to corporations, some of the same corporations that run our country's detention centres are now communicating with us about our Centrelink files. Hi, this is Mitchell from Cut Copy, and you're listening to 3CR. Please support community radio. Subscribe now. Here's a specific example. Uh, I rang up to report recently with Centrelink that the Centrelink app was saying I could no longer report earnings because I was three weeks overdue in reporting my income and to please contact Centrelink. I always keep a screenshot, listeners, of every time I report my income earnings to Centrelink on the app which the screenshot has a clear receipt number and time and date of reporting. So I phoned Centrelink and spoke to the person on the disability support pension line and they were quite friendly and tried to help and said they couldn't really understand why my app was saying this message that I was overdue to report when they themselves could see on their computer that I had reported for the previous fortnight and that the receipt number I gave them was the same that they could see in front of them. So they said that they would transfer me to another department and within about three seconds the phone was disconnected. And I rang Centrelink again, went through the same process of explanation and of course waiting to speak to someone before I even got to that point. And the person asked me all the same questions, got to exactly the same point and then said, Okay, we'll transfer you to an area which can fix your problem and within three seconds the phone was disconnected. The third time I just asked straight away, could I please speak to a supervisor? The worker was very reluctant for me to speak to a supervisor. They wanted to know the reasons why and I said I've attempted many times to speak to a worker and the phone keeps getting disconnected and can I please speak to a supervisor? I had to just constantly state that I think it was about five times in a row in a, and I kept a polite voice just saying like a broken record can I please speak to a supervisor and finally was put through to a Centrelink supervisor within that department who managed to solve the problem within about three minutes. I give that story as just one little example that people are experiencing of trying to communicate with bureaucracy of getting over that wall and speaking to a real human and somebody that has the ability and the time and the empathy to understand their situation. 
I've also incorrectly received a robo-debt within the last month. A phone call came to me from Centrelink one day, and the caller said that we understand that you're appealing your robo-debt, and I quickly said, look, I haven't received any robo-debt letter, I'm not sure what you're talking about. And then the person looked into the system, and after about five minutes, they realised that it was an error, that no debt notice had been issued. And since talking to the campaign Not My Debt, they have suggested sometimes that people can receive these type of calls or incorrect notices simply on the fact that they have a common name. The computers are speaking to us, but we struggle to speak back to anyone, and of course we can't speak to the computers. I'm going to talk now about some of the latest developments with Centrelink during the last week. Reading from an article on the 7th of September from the Canberra Times titled After Chasing Centrelink Depths, Human Services Cuts Jobs in Focus Area, writes Sally White. The staff members that are having their jobs cut are part of the debt management branch of the Department of Human Services, where they had previously believed more recruitment was on the cards due to the heavy workload. The article continues, Due to the government's ongoing focus of recouping overpayments from Centrelink, the total money owed to the agency topped more than $1.2 billion in May. The government flagged savings of $300 million over three years in the budget due to ramping up debt recovery and fraud detection. The author then writes, The department did not respond to questions about how work done by staff would be continued, but the main public sector union fears the work will go to labour hire staff. These experienced staff are expected to be replaced by labour hire staff, quote, who won't have the same experience and corporate knowledge to do the work to the required standard, quote, from the Community and Public Sector Union Deputy Secretary, Melissa Donnelly. In summary, listeners, experienced people in the Department of Human Services who had significant communication abilities and knew the system are being cut labour hire, taking their place, people coming in without those years of experience and training to do the same job. That's my opinion, that's not quoting that part from the article. The article then continues later to quote, The Abbott Turnbull Morrison Government axed 2,500 experienced Centrelink staff over the last few years, outsourcing jobs to labour hire firms. Now they're at it again and it's Centrelink clients, older Australians, students, carers who were paid a price, from the robo-debt debacle to frustrating Centrelink wait times. The Coalition Government's job cuts are making it more difficult for Australians to contact and access Centrelink, says Labor Human Services spokesperson Ed Husick. To conclude, listeners, this shocking culling of experienced Centrelink debt collection staff comes at a time when we have been hearing of more improper debt collection antics from private collectors. Anecdotal evidence would suggest that Centrelink has been sending more debts of former recipients to private debt collectors, even while dodgy robo-debts are clearly under dispute. There have been reports that private firms responsible for robo-debt recovery contracts have been trawling social media accounts of robo-debt victims and then using the information gleaned to contact family members and even clients in one instance. In one recent case, 
the grieving mother of a robo-debt victim was brought to tears by a pushy representative. Listeners, we would urge anyone who has been subject to improper harassment over a Centrelink debt to go straight to the Commonwealth Ombudsman with their complaints. And of course, always check out the Not My Debt website. That's it for this week's edition of Over the Wall. Next week, we'll be speaking to Jeremy from the Australian Unemployed Workers' Union about dodgy practices by job agencies and the work for the Dole Scheme. listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned to hear the rest of your 3CR podcast. Welcome back to Monday Breakfast on 3CR. We've been listening to Over the Wall and in just a moment we're going to speak to Reese Graham, who's the filmmaker of a new film, Ranger to Ranger. And it's a program that sends Aboriginal rangers to Kenya to meet with, um, you know, rangers there. Um, they're spending time with them in their work and sharing their kind of knowledge and stories. Um, so, Reese, thanks a lot for joining us this morning. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Well, the film shows, I guess, like the beauty of the land across Kenya and it's uh, interspersed um really beautifully with the music of, of Dan, Dan Sultan and, and I guess the kind of tales of the participants, both the Kenyan and um, Aboriginal um, participants, the rangers. And what, I, what, um, what made you want to get involved in this project and you know, how did you um, see the importance of making sure it was documented into this film? Uh, well, I, I knew a bit about um, Thin Green Line and the work that they'd been doing over the last sort of 10 years or so. They... Um, they have been kind of an offshoot of the, the International Rangers Federation that actually came about out of a documentary film that the uh, one of the uh, Rangers did many years back. Um, and they've sort of since spent a lot of time supporting Rangers across the world and trying to highlight the struggles and the difficulties and sacrifices. And so I was having a chat to Dan, who I've known and worked with for many years, and he said that he was, you know, had been working as an ambassador for them and that they'd invited him to come over to... Uh, to Uganda and Kenya and see the kind of work that Thin Green Line was doing, but in particular to participate in this Indigenous Ranger Exchange, which was taking over a group, uh, three actually rangers from three different uh, parts of the country, from uh, the Matu Western Desert mob, the uh, rangers from Jarwin and some rangers from Kimberley. And so they were going over to knowledge share, to, to teach and learn, with rangers, particularly Maasai rangers, working in um, in out in Amboseli in in Kenya, so it was kind of one of those things where it was, we were talking about the possibility of making a film about it, and it just seemed, you know, too much of a rich experience and too much of a great story to not to not try and tell it. Yeah, I mean, I guess for listeners, like, what is what is the role of a ranger? Like, what are they um, kind of doing out there? Well, I mean, obviously, the, the the kind of the work of rangers changes depending on the ecosystem and the kinds of things that are happening. I guess people probably are fairly aware of 
the work that happens in a lot of West Africa because it's the kind of stuff that's maybe a little bit more um, discussed. You know, it's kind of the people there who are really on the front lines of guarding against international poaching, protecting you know elephants and rhinos, uh, the Highland gorillas, things like that. I mean, they're unfortunately for a lot of those people, they're at the nexus of, of a lot of complex and difficult issues. And so, while they're you know a lot of them are young men and women who've grown up. In and around the the land, and their and their and their, their main desire is to ensure that they protect those ecosystems. They're often also having to do that in a way that involves, um, you know, putting their lives on the line. You know, a lot of rangers die in 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 the course of their work over there, literally just trying to protect and maintain those environments. That, of course, is very different to, um, you know, there's there's similar but different struggles that happen across South America or, or through Asia. I mean. In every anywhere there's wilderness, there's you know groups of rangers who are tackling complex issues, and that of course includes Australia. I thought one of the really interesting um, moments that happened in the film was when uh, the rangers were, um, you know, rescuing their cow that was um, part of the community there, and you know talked about the impact that the cow is probably going to have a negative impact mostly on the environment there, but the way that the rangers work with the community to support them and that the community members will in turn support them to let them know about poachers and things like that. It seemed like, um, yeah, just kind of a, a really interesting moment in the film and highlight the kind of need to share on each other's um, experience and knowledge. And Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's that's one of, the, one of the sorts of things that maybe I didn't expect to see. I mean, I think I probably expected to, you know, I knew that we would, you know, we'd be going up into the highlands and I knew we'd be seeing a lot of the wildlife but that was one of those things where you realise actually so much of what rangers do, and, and probably relates very strongly to to you know to Australian Indigenous rangers. You know they're working side by side with community to make sure that they, uh, you know, that they're, they're about they're, they have to have a balance between the way people traditionally use the land, but also contemporary concerns for ecosystems. So that what you have there is you've got the Maasai, who a really strong part of their culture is rearing um, livestock, rearing cattle. Um, and that, and that, you know, that's important on many, many levels. Not only just sort of for the maintenance of the health of the community, but also culturally. And so, you know, they have to deal for, you know, when you're in Savannah, they they dig these deep water wells, um, and a lot of, you know, baby elephants or or young or smaller animals get trapped in these water wells and dry and uh, die, you know, drown and die. And so it's something where they're trying to kind of educate the Maasai. Communities and a lot of the a lot of the majority of the rangers who are there are Maasai themselves, so they're they're kind of speaking back to their community and saying, you know, we need to change these practices and evolve so that we can, while we you know, without disrupting the continuity of the cultural practice, they can still find ways to ensure that they're protecting the wildlife, and also because traditionally, a lot of those local communities have been threatened, you know, like elephants on a regular basis, and and of course lions and various things, you know, like they kill the community members, so traditionally. The hunters will go out and 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 kill, and even the score to a certain extent. And so, part of what they do again is to sort of say, "Look, you know, you let us out, let us manage this in a way that's effective and and maintains uh, the balance of the ecosystem." And 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 um and we kind of we try and they try and learn and learn and learn off each other. And as you said, the communities then feeling kind of gratitude to the rangers and not feeling kind of like they're being uh, uh, coerced or changed or shifted in their cultural practices are then saying, look, there's someone unfamiliar that we've been seeing around. We're pretty sure they're a poacher. And so mm. there's a really kind of symbiotic relationship, which is really important. 
And the film shows the conditions that the Kenyan rangers live in, and as part of the this program is kind of has been assisting to improve some of those conditions there, and some of the, um, you know, even just small kind of um, contributions, that, you know, you see make quite a big difference there. What were the reactions from the Australian group to the conditions there? Look, I think um, it's really true. Obviously, we, you know, there are advantages to a lot of the, the rangers here. They use a lot more technology. They, you know, they're probably working in quite different circumstances in terms of the, you know, a lot of the African rangers are very, they, they really struggle for resources. I mean, it's just, it's, it's even just simple practical things that you don't even think about. But the, the wages are so low and the support is so low in a lot of the, a lot of the parts of certainly the parts we visited where. You know, they're struggling to get boots or a pocket knife. Like mosquito, or a mosquito nets. Net. Yeah, I mean, yeah. mosquito nets is something that I did, you know, again, that was really something just so simple and so inexpensive. But you've got rangers who are, who are you know, getting malaria half a dozen mm. times a year. Um, and the kind of things, you know, like it, it takes it takes such a, such a tiny amount of money to get, you know, thousands of, a few thousand mosquito nets out to a lot of these rangers. And that's one of the things that Finger Mine's done, I think, really effectively is to kind of go, look, there are, there are things that we can do that are much bigger and systemic, but also we just need, like, we need people to just kind of be thinking that if we can just sort of contribute a little bit, then we can just get some of these more, more modest things. And they do do, you know, they do a lot of other bigger things like, um, uh, you know, supporting widows and families after rangers um, are killed in the line of duty. Um, obviously, they support communities, but yeah, sometimes it's just those little things. I think a lot of the, a lot of the indigenous rangers that was pretty eye opening. Um, mm. But you know, what was more interesting, I think, was also just the commonality that, like, a lot of the the, the guys, you know, find themselves you know on the other side of the world, but what they're actually sharing of very very similar practices and the way that kind of the sharing of community and culture was very similar. And and um, yeah, I mean, there's really beautiful moments and where. We were out tracking rhino up in the in the Chilka Hills, and the you know the guys that were out there, who you know they they look after this small pocket of rhinos. They were like, oh, you know, you guys you guys track them, you guys show them. You know, we're walking around, and it was impossible to see for me any any possible <laughs> traces of them. But these young guys from the Kimberley were tracking the rhinos using exactly the same sets of skills, um, and I think that kind of like was one of those things that sort of thrilled both different groups of rangers just to see how how um, their knowledge was just so easily shared across such a huge distance. There was a moment where uh, Dan was describing uh, an exchange that happened, a kind of a joke where the different, it was, you know, passed through um, I think four or five different languages and then eventually everyone laughed. Um, and I thought that was quite symbolic of, you know, that everyone, you know, was really patient and, and supportive with each other and, and really, like you said, kind of sharing um you know, a really common experience that they have with each other, but across all these different languages and experiences. That must have been a really um, beautiful kind of moment. I imagine there were other moments like that that, you know, we don't get to see off camera that, you know, really encapsulate kind of, I guess it's something that's really part of the human spirit, you know, isn't it? Absolutely. And I mean, I think there's a lot of the, what the, a lot of the young, the young rangers from Australia, you know, like these are, these are guys who are quite a, you know, incredibly skilled and able and, and recognising their community. And I think that that was but what was really powerful that they kind of kept on coming back and saying, you know, you re- you recognise that you're part of this bigger family, that that's not, you know, you're working, you might be working in your small pocket of land. I mean, of course, in Australia, they're usually huge, huge <laughs> pockets yeah. of land. But um, the 
but you know that there that actually there's this bigger family of people, and I think it's that that shared passion and connection to land, and the, you know the desire to protect these vulnerable places and vulnerable animals. That's that's kind of their their overriding passion. I think that there were those moments, you know, like where you kind of go, well, there's like these guys from. Well, you'd think that these, you know, culturally, language-wise, there's so many differences. But in fact, of course, as is so often the way with humans, is that once you, once you begin to connect, it's 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 um it's the things that bind you together. But yeah, that sense of family at the end was for me the most powerful, lasting thing. And I think that hopefully these kinds of programs they're going to kind of they're um, I think hope they're part of a film like this is to try and raise awareness of it to raise increasing support and to make it a really continual thing you know for example bringing some of those rangers back over here to learn how technology can be used more effectively or how land management's used here um and not just those rangers but you know there's a there's a women's program that's happening where a group of um women rangers are going over to deal with some of the there's a zimbabwean uh group of actually you know, excuse me, I think it might be in Tanzania, a group of one women rangers who are sort of working on the front lines of, of, of actual animal protection, of elephant protection. So there's all sorts of programs that um, that are happening that are really just about uh, trying to keep that family connection alive across the different countries. And the the film is being shown, I guess, to, to premiere across Australia at the moment. And I think it was um, last night was the first of that in Hobart. What was the kind of it reaction was, yeah. there? Uh, it was really powerful. I mean, I think people find obviously the you know the stories of the rangers and and you know and just getting that kind of intimate insight into what that what that relationship was between the two different groups and um, it was was really moving. I think and I mean you know and Dan's a really wonderful guide through that experience. I mean, we're part of the reason why we wanted to do it with Dan is to let someone else kind of you know open our eyes to these things and he was discovering these things for the first time. So. You know, part of what he does is he kind of, you know, he shows us, takes us to these places, but also, you know, in doing that, he, you know, he gives a little bit back by sharing his stories and songs. And so there's a there's a sort of a lot, I think, to, to, to move an audience. And I think we found that they were really, you know, deeply connected to the story. So we're going to, we're doing a, a national tour and taking it around. I think this, this weekend it's in um, a couple of screenings in Victoria. There's one in... Uh, down at Merrick's on the Peninsula and then um, at Werribee on Saturday, which would be great. Mm-hmm. And then I think it's in Adelaide as well on the Thursday night. So mm-hmm. um, I think the, the Thin Green Line, the actual the webpage, if you go to the Facebook or thingreenline.org.au, has all the, the dates on it. But, um, yeah, it'll be a bit of a national tour to try and take it out to, to different audiences. And a lot of the first premiere screenings we're having at zoos, which is really, you know, kind of a beautiful thing to... Yeah, I, I imagine that. I'm sure. Sorry. Oh, I think all of them will be great, but I imagine particularly the Werribee Zoo on Saturday, um, kind of being in amongst um, all the the animals and things there will be a pretty special kind of um, you know screening of the of the film, and there's going to be time for um, a Q and A session and and some entertainment and things as well over that. Absolutely, yeah. And in fact, um, Joseph Katoki, who's one of the really uh, important Maasai rangers, is coming out for the screening. So he'll be doing Q and A, so people have a chance to kind of meet and hear about some of those practices. And I, I mean, I'm definitely taking and drag all my family out to the one at Werribee because it'll be feels like it'll be a nice thing to kind of go and wander around there and then sit and watch the film. And um, and I think they're trying to. Um, I think it's, uh, you know there'll be there'll be a bit of music and just general general chats afterwards, which is always a nice thing after a film premiere to feel like you're feel like you're connecting with the community as well.
And I believe, you know, the intention of, of part of the film and, you know, the, the project as well is to continue to raise money for the Thing Green Line Foundation. And that's part of, as you said, trying to bring some of the rangers um, over to Australia and, and continuing to send Aboriginal rangers um, as part of the program as well. So it's a really important and yeah, worthy absolutely. cause. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's one of the reasons why I agreed to make this, you know, to, to embark on the film and, and, uh, and, you know, I guess don- donate this film to, to the Thing Green Line was to, um, to do exactly that, you know, to go to realise the thing about film, of course, is that it's, uh, it can travel so quickly across communities. And I mean, it's one of the, a very quick way to kind of show people, like, this is, this is what's happening out on the front lines. And this, these are the kind of sacrifices that these young men and women are making. And it's, and it's, you know, it's not just simply as much as sort of saying, you know, that they, they want financial help, but also like that we can educate ourselves about how important this kind of frontline ranger work is. That this is something that, you know, people are, they're not doing it selfishly and doing it to maintain these wild places for the rest of us because it, you know, this all, it all belongs to us. And I think that that kind of stuff was, the, that was what really moved me was just the, the incredible self-sacrifice. So to kind of be able to find a way to give back or to ask other people to be aware of and give back to, to these guys, and you know, it's, it's, uh, it feels like a pretty powerful thing to do. Well, yeah, I I, um, I really enjoyed watching the film, and I urge others to go out and check it out. Um, before we let you go, Reese, is there have you got some other projects that you're working on that you can let us know about? Uh, yeah, I've actually I've just in the middle of been filming a, a project in uh, in Spain for the last six months with. The, there's a, a really great screenwriter, Andrew Bavell, who is um, who's been collaborating with a group of young uh, Spanish theatre makers, and it's a film that's a bit about the kind of cultural collision between two countries that struggle with reconciliation of their bloody history. So that's been a really interesting, interesting and quite different uh, film to make, rather than being kind of out in the middle of nowhere. It's mostly in a rehearsal studio, but um. And yeah, and then about to embark on on uh, directing a Netflix series later on this year, which is which will be a nice little departure from both. So, a few things going on, and then hopefully back to another film some of some kind next year. Yeah, great. Well, um, we'll look forward to um, finding out more about those and checking them out. And we really appreciate uh, you taking up some of your morning this morning and chatting to us about the Ranger to Ranger film and the tour that's coming up because it's a, a really interesting and, and really worthwhile um, project. People should get behind. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. Uh, you've been listening to Monday Breakfast on 3CR, and um, we'll just play an announcement. We're going to come back with a, a little bit of a chat about the state of affairs for the um, AFL and um, play a bit of music. 3CR is in the running to receive nearly $100,000 to help us retrofit our station for greater accessibility. That means better handrails, doors, taps, ramps, and more to provide improved access for everyone. But we need your support. Do you live within five kilometres of the station at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy? If you do, you're eligible to vote for us. Our project is part of the Victorian State Government's Pick My Project scheme. And you can jump online and vote for 3CR's Community Radio Accessibility Project by going to 3cr.org.au. It's only with your vote that we can receive this important funding to make our station more accessible.
Welcome back to Monday Breakfast on 3CR. And um, I'm not sure exactly what the weather is, but it is... Um, it's it nice. Is, it is a lot warmer than it has been. And I noticed... Um, it's 14 more, degrees. 14 degrees. Mm-hmm. Going to bed um, last night and getting up this morning. That was quite nice outside. Um, well, what what wasn't nice was um, the end of an era for... Um, a couple of football teams over the weekend, and we're going to try to keep. We recorded a podcast that, um, uh, you know, couldn't quite. We didn't quite make it, so we can have a quite a, quite a just a brief chat here about a couple of footy issues, and we'll try yeah. to keep it um, relevant to social political issues as well. Yeah, and for our listeners that are interested in football, we are going to put up an extended chat. Uh, we went to record it earlier this week. We were planning to cover a lot of different things. After 48 minutes, we'd only spoken about the first two games of the final, so obviously we have quite a bit to say on the matter. Please keep an eye on the 3CR Monday Breakfast page, and there will be something up there when we finally finish it. Pretty sure all um, the things we predicted to say were wrong. So no, we can... I was right with both my tips, actually. I've got evidence. No, you I picked tipped... Shalong. No, I didn't. I tipped Melbourne. I picked Melbourne. So did I. I'll have to go back to the tape. On yeah, and we'll have to refer to the tape. Anyway, yeah, you tipped Hawthorne. You were definitely wrong on That's that one. Um, but for those who are disgusted by our constant talk of football, and I know you're out there. I said it at the start of the show. I'll say it again now. We may be inspiring an anti-football movement by talking about football so often on 3CR, but we are going to try and keep it to some private podcasts moving forward. Though we will occasionally talk about it. But go ahead, James. What do you think the major issues have been well i think you know there's one thing uh we maybe would have skipped this part but i was going to talk about um the kind of demise of you know we've seen what we have like it's often referred to as kind of this socialist system in Mm. the afl of it's meant to be a cyclical kind of thing of teams are up the top for a period of time and then because of the constraints on each team through the salary cap and and the concessions of, of getting top draft picks and things like that. Progressive tax regimes. Yeah, then teams welfare. are meant to kind of drop down and then they replenish with young players again and then they move back up. That's the theory. Geelong, Sydney and Hawthorne have, um, you know, really flying in the fa- flown in the face of this over the past decade or so. Um, but they all, all three had really embarrassing losses over the weekend. Mm. So um, I think it'd be interesting to see what happens with those teams. And I guess, you know, the... The nature of that system is um, continually changing. I think in the AFL, the free agency um, has kind of changed that stuff as well. You know, we see one of the best players in the competition in Tom Lynch is going to go to the best team in um, Richmond. Yep. And uh, that is one of the major criticisms at the moment of free agency, that it um, uh, favours those that are already at the top of the table, undoing some of the efforts of the AFL to equalise the competition. But I think what we've seen, you know, with teams like Hawthorne and Geelong, who have gone heavily after some superstars at other teams, and Sydney, Sydney, I should include them as well, you know, they've invested heavily in other teams' superstars that they've created. They don't have the same, they don't appear to have the same cohesion that a team like Richmond, who has grown its own stars does and it'll be interesting to see the way tom lynch impacts that um but you know what what it appears to be doing for geelong and sydney and hawthorne is papering over some cracks in their list you know that they've gone and they've got these big name stars patrick dangerfield tom mitchell buddy franklin and then on other lines in other areas they've had to give up they've had to scrimp and save you know so they've lost some of that depth and i get i get the feeling you know they've lost some of the vibe of of the places by constantly chasing this high level of success and not allowing people to have that 
slow, gradual build together. One of the features of Geelong's period of success particularly was kind of back-to-back VFL successes before the AFLs came around, you know. So you saw that group of players improve together at a lower level before they came up to compete at the AFL. That was also a feature of uh, Hawthorne's period of dominance as well. They had real success in the VFL. So all of the indications are suggesting that Essendon surprised uh, semi-final winner in the VFL against uh, the top-ranked Richmond over the weekend to catapult themselves into a preliminary final from eighth, uh, heading to the same sort of success in the well, near future. <laughs> I think something that flows from this, which I think is interesting is that the AFL is still a membership-based um, support. You know, the um, un- you know, unlike any other kind of sport in Australia, it um, is, you know, the NRL are, you know, a lot privately owned. They don't have a, a large membership base. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, other, other, other um, sports teams do try to, um, have tried to, you know, manage this over the last few years, I guess, the um, Big Bash and Netball in particular. But... Mm-hmm. Um, you know, with the membership-based support for clubs, I guess, yeah, drew to my um, interest, like how should fans react and or kind of like use their membership to voice concerns about things they don't support at their clubs? You know, for instance, um, you know, not just like um, there could be, you know, social issues and things, but, you know, from a, how the club is operating, you know, if the if the club doesn't feel that's the right direction, you know, is that should the members... Um, you know, it's a membership-based organisation, so then mm. they can withdraw their membership as mm. a means of saying, well, I don't support these decisions. Mm. And they I can also vote in elections for their club boards. But are you asking about how do the, does the AFL community hold the AFL to account rather than the individual clubs? Is that is that what you're asking? Um, because there's a number of mechanisms. Bo- for... It can be both of those things, but I meant more in clubland. Yeah. Well, in clubland, I think Geelong are actually a leader in that area in having, um, you know, open elections to their members to elect the you know, the board members in different periods and obviously that's um can be exploited by factions and whatnot, the same as any political process. But there is mechanisms for, you know, I, I remember at Essendon that it was kind of a fan, there was a fan revol- revolt when Sheedy was moved on and there was a fan revolt against Matthew Knights, who's then enjoyed a very successful career at Geelong. Um, so a career? Yep. Yeah, it's been pretty good. Um, so... <coughs> Yeah, I think I think they're there. Do you think that the, the fans lack some agency within the I AFL think, clubs? They got they got the they've got their consumer activism. They can put well, their membership I think in that the it's, microwave. Um, that mostly that the fans um, just blindly support the club. And I, I guess that I've had a lot of conversations with um, people over the weekend about um, this kind of issue about the membership, and, um, and a lot of people's response was. Well, the club is good sometimes and bad others. You just need to support the club. And so, well, it's I, called faith. I don't support the club in the decisions they've made. For what instance, particularly is bugging like, you as a Geelong supporter at the moment? The renewal of uh, Chris Scott's contract. Is exactly. That, yeah. I think that um, to re-sign the coach only a couple of weeks before the finals, when the major problem has been the finals record. Mm-hmm. I don't know any Geelong supporters who thought that was a good idea. And he's re-signed for a further three years. He was already contracted for next year. Anyway, this is getting a bit too much into... I didn't want to go into that kind of minutiae of it. But it is, um, I guess, an interesting kind of perspective because I think that Geelong will have a huge decline in membership next year. And there are other issues. You know, the club constantly lie to its fans. They they have um, taken, you know, more and more things away from what they used to give the fans. And, you know, it's part of that corporatizing of, of the um, 
membership base and taken them for granted. Mm. Brian Cook is CEO at Geelong, mm. has said that they will keep contending for the flag because they need to pay off the stadium. So they need to keep getting members in and they won't, they can't afford to, um, to basically tell the truth and say, we need to, I, I don't think totally bottoming out doesn't work either. And I, so I don't think that's the way to go, but yeah, terrible, you know, terrible for your culture. Yeah, yeah. But there's a balance in between there. And, you know, so yeah, I think it's an interesting discussion. Yep. We can have it longer on the podcast for those that are interested. Uh, thanks to all of our listeners this morning. Good morning, Layla. Yep, good morning. Sorry, I was one of those anti-football things, just kind of like with my arms crossed, just like zoning in but zoning out at the same time. And just like, I, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well said. Well, we'll. I'd like to cover more of the um, AFLW as that season starts. Me so we'll too. definitely be um, excited having a chat about that. But next is Women on the Line. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.